You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great, if you've got a Bible, I would love it if you could turn to Revelation. Revelation's the last book in the Bible. We're doing a series called Utopia. Utopia, and this is the third out of six. My privilege to be speaking on this. Just while you're finding that, I was thinking, we all love rewards. Isn't that true? I, I don't know about you. I used to be a primary school teacher. You could really motivate kids if you could say, oh, well done in front of the other kids. Or if you gave them a certificate, they love it. I was out shopping this week at HMV. I wasn't even aware they were still open. But, you know, they, they, they want me to sign up to their reward scheme. The reality is that if you keep shopping in the same place, you get rewards. Let's be frank. If you're successful at work, they reward you. They might reward you with extra time off. They might reward you with some great experience. If you watch The Apprentice, the winning team always get a reward, don't they? You guys can go and have a really nice meal. The reality is that we love the whole concept of rewards. In fact, we think about it a lot of the time. If you look even at your Facebook, so often what you're showing is the rewards I've got in life. It could be a really nice meal, it could be a fancy holiday, it could be expensive objects, it could be your own home, it could be a Ferrari on the drive. I'd just love to own a drive, let alone a Ferrari. <laughs> the reality is that we can get caught up in rewards. I, I think that as Christians, we believe that too. And I think that when we come and look at this, that so often what we think is we, we know of our God who's the saviour of the world. And then we suddenly think about, oh, surely everything's going to go well for me. He'll reward me if I'm good. And, and so often we can turn up and suddenly think, oh, well, actually, my kids should do really well at school because he'll reward me. Oh, my marriage is going to be great because he's going to reward me. And then when life gets tough, we think, where is God? I heard just this week someone say, didn't turn out as I thought. I just wonder if I can still believe. <sighs> Things are going hard. Well, this whole question of utopia and rewards is what this letter is about that we're going to look at. If you've got your Bible, it's Revelation chapter 2, and I'm just going to read a few verses from verse 8 to verse 11. To the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write. This was a vision, this whole book that John had. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was on the island of Patmos, and we believe these are the words of Jesus to him. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and, will, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Golly, we need help, don't we? Let's pray. 
Jesus, we believe these words are yours. We believe that you inspired them through your spirit. We pray that you'd speak to us. We thank you that as we've come to worship you this morning, it has felt so tender hearing you reach out to us. Let us hear from you, we pray now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Smyrna. Smyrna is the only place, there were seven letters written in the book of Revelation, that is still around really as a city today. Some of you may even have been there on holiday. It's basically Izmir. So if you go to Turkey, that is the place that this letter was written to. It was one of the only purpose-built cities in the world. It was on a natural port. It was a place of wealth and beauty. It was considered the second most important city at the time. If you know your geography there at all, these are the letters, these are the places the letters were written to. Ephesus was considered the most important place, and then Smyrna said we're the second most important place. It had a huge theater, it had temples, it had a library. The thing about Smyrna, in the midst of all its success, it also had a bad smell. You see, the people didn't realize that when they flushed their sewage out into the sea, that the wind would bring the odor back in again. And they reckon if you lived in Smyrna at the time, although you had all this wealth, there felt like a bad smell about it. It's funny because the church there was living in this prosperous place, but you could say spiritually there was a bad smell. You see, Smyrna was the first place that went for emperor worship. Emperor worship was this. Once a year, you had to take some incense and you had to burn it in a flame. And when you burnt it, you had to declare this. Caesar is Lord. If you said it, you were given a certificate. It basically said you've done your worship for the year. Every year, you'd have to go back. You'd have to burn the incense. Caesar is Lord. Well, obviously, as a Christian... You'd say, Jesus is Lord. So they're suddenly presented with this dilemma. What on earth do I do? This sort of beautiful, incredible place. What on earth is it like? We know that people were martyred in this place. I told you that John had written the book. Well, one of his disciples was a guy called Polycarp. And in fact, it is recorded in history. It was a Saturday morning on the 23rd of February, 155 AD, that he was burnt at the stake for being a Christian. He said this, 86 years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You see, although he was an old man, and this is obviously just some sort of picture that they imagine him being burnt at the stake. He even was saying, look, you don't need to time it. I will stay here because I'd rather die for my king than deny it. They felt embarrassed for him and they were almost saying, look, if you just deny, if you say Caesar is Lord rather than Jesus, we'll let you off. And he said, no, I won't deny my Lord. Suffering. This church knew what suffering was all about. And this is what this letter is written to. It's funny, I, I can, I'm preparing for it this week, and I think, I do not want to belittle that I'm aware that people here will think you know that you're going through a time of suffering. I find it fascinating. 
Three areas are brought out in the letter. Tribulation, poverty, prison. Tribulation, I looked it up this week. It says a grievous trouble, severe trial or suffering. I've got two brothers. I'm I'm the middle, but I am the smallest. So whenever there was a bundle at our house, I always seemed to be on the bottom. I don't understand why I should have been on the top, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, one of my brothers would be on me, and then the next one would jump on. And sometimes you feel like, God, my ribcage is going to go. I'd be going, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, get off! (laughs) That is what tribulation means in life. I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I think I'm going to die. This is how the church were feeling. He says, tribulation, serious trouble, poverty. When it uses this word here, it's not saying, look, you can't afford the fancy things. Okay, we're going to have to trim back a bit on Christmas this year. Poverty was you couldn't afford the basics. It wasn't, oh, I can't afford the luxury. Poverty was you literally didn't, there was no Ealing food bank in that day. It's not like you could go and get three days worth of supplies or something that would keep you. Poverty meant you had nothing. Absolutely nothing. And no way of thinking you could get out of it. Prison, I I don't want to be too political here, I'm just trying to help us understand. Prison was not a stake while you were awaiting your punishment. Prison in those days, it wasn't like, oh, well, you might go to prison and then you come to court. Prison was the fact you are going to die, we're just not quite sure when we're going to kill you. They put you into prison, they didn't bother feeding you. Why would you bother feeding someone? We're just about to kill them. It's it's amazing. He's writing to these people and he's saying, I know about your tribulation. I know about your poverty. I know that you're in prison. Pete, this is not the message we really wanted to hear before Christmas. I thought this was utopia. And yet sometimes I think this is more the message of the gospel than we like to hear. Jesus says to his disciples in Mark chapter 8, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Nowadays, we can think, oh, the cross, it's a nice wooden structure. But actually, if you carried a cross in those days, you were condemned to die. He was saying, if you want to become a Christian, this is it. You die to yourself. You will suffer. The, the, the Jewish people at the time couldn't get their head around this. You see, they had thought that when the Messiah came, he would set them free. And because the Romans were the political enemies, they thought he would set us free from the Romans. Our reward will be freedom. And they never saw the suffering servant that Isaiah had predicted. I sometimes wonder if we're following a different Messiah now. And we think, well, actually, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to line my pockets and he's going to give me success and he's going to give me wealth and I'm going to be... And then we miss it because it was the prophesied suffering servant. Jesus said, if you follow me, take up your cross. This is why we baptize people. You see, the whole thing of baptism, and and, and one day I believe we will have our own building. We don't have our own building now. One day, you know, we dig a hole in the floor. Why is that? Because it's meant to be the grave. 
we, we tend to set up a pool at the back there. But the whole thing is that somebody goes into the grave. Literally, you push them down in baptism because they die to themselves and they come back up and they live again. That's what it's all about. Many believers in the world are suffering today. It tells us in Hebrews, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. I don't know anything of that. But I am aware that people here still suffer. We might not be sawn in two, but I'm aware that people here still suffer. You see, what I love about this passage is the first two words of verse 9. When he's just about to talk about the suffering, when he's just about to talk about the poverty, he says this, I know. When I was a kid, we used to have a saying, you know, if you were ill, you know, he says, I don't mind suffering in silence as long as everyone knows I'm suffering in silence. You know what I'm saying? It's like, poor me, pity me, I don't feel well. There's something about being known. You see, so often when we suffer, we think nobody understands. You don't understand what my marriage is like. You don't understand what it feels like waiting to see the doctor about my cancer. You don't know what it's like thinking, will my kids come home and how are they going to speak to me? But what we get here is God says, I know. You can say, oh, Pete, you don't know what it's like to still be single and want to be married. You don't know what it's like to love to have my own family and, and have trouble starting. But what we read from this letter is God says, I know. You see, it's not just an academic. It's not just because he's God and he's been there. It's because he's come and lived on this earth. All the suffering we've been through. We so often turn Christmas into this nice young mum, you know, who's rocking this baby. But you think, golly, who was the dad? What was the baby called? What was the father's name? You know what I'm saying? Was it Joe? Oh, no, it was God. I wonder how he'd have been teased. What it was like to be a refugee was at the age of two he had to flee. What it was like to be deserted by all your best friends. But Jesus knew all of that, didn't he? What it was like to be hung upon a cross, naked, in front of your mother. Jesus knew about rejection. Jesus knew about disappointment. I don't know what you are going through, but this letter would say, God says, I know. I mean, isn't that better than the utopia of something that glitters but then needs updating? Something that you almost say, oh, wow, this is my reward, but then I need to do another reward. I don't know your challenge, but I know the God who knows. And that's the hope I take from this. It says, doesn't it, in verse 8, even before we get into the challenges, and to the angel... Of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. 
You see, what this letter is saying to this church that is in a difficult time is see God. See God. You see, it says, doesn't it, the words are the first and the last. Well, if you were here two weeks ago whenever when I did my first one, we know that the Alpha and the Omega were the, the beginning and the last letters of the alphabet. And we know that actually it wasn't just I'm the A to Z of your faith. I'm the every letter in between. And so what it's, it's reminding here is, look, I know you're going through this difficult time, but I want you to know I was at the beginning, I was at the end, and I'm there every single day with you in between. I want you to see God. Even the phrase, who died and came to life. Smyrna was one of the older cities. I told you it was a purpose-built city. They reckon it was a thousand years old by the time this letter got there. But it had a period in its history where it had been plundered and it had actually been empty for 300 years. Imagine, 300 years. And then somebody decided to rebuild it. And so as a city, they almost felt like they had been resurrected. And so this hope comes. Look, I don't just want you to think of a city that has been reborn. I want you to think about the one who's been reborn for eternity. Resurrected forevermore. This letter is coming for the one who suffered on the cross, who physically dies who was placed in a tomb. The Roman soldiers knew about death and they'd certified that this man, Jesus, has died. The disciples go and mourn for him and yet the body is not there because the clearest picture is he has risen again. Romans 8, it says this, I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. I tell you this. I used to visit a lady in my last church who was in a wheelchair, and she was suffering. Every time I visited her, to be honest, prognosis wasn't good. There is no happy end to this. I did her funeral. But you know, every time I saw her, I came away thinking, wow, God is in that woman. You know what I'm saying? I'm not a great hospital visitor. I'm really sorry. if I will make every effort if you go to the hospital. But I used to turn up and she used to say to me, Pete, you look awful. I said, oh, I feel awful. She goes, oh, don't stay too long. I don't want to get down. <laughs> I'd say, well, I'll be as quick as I can, but I feel I should come. I'm your pastor, you know what I'm saying? I'd sit and chat to her, and the love of God just flowed out from her to me. But she suffered every day. But what she did is she just knew God. She knew God in a way that was just incredible. Nothing could separate her from the love of God. I don't know what you're suffering, but I know this. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And then, what do, what do we end up by seeing here? What does the Spirit say in the midst of this? It says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers. You see, the Spirit is saying this, Do not fear, be faithful. Again, this was a fascinating concept, and I wish we had longer to look at it. 
Smyrna was considered a faithful city. It had shown allegiance to Rome before they were successful and dominated the whole world. They'd always said, actually, we're Romans, we're Romans, we're Romans. In fact, Rome loved them, therefore, and sort of said, well, actually, you're almost like a part of us, and if you're going to be you know, there, we, we give you citizenship. They had proved faithful. This letter is saying, come on, I want you as a church to be faithful. I found it fascinating. It talks about persevering for 10 days. We've got to be careful not to read too much into this. This book, uh, the book of Revelation, it often says, I see things like, I don't want to try and explain exactly why it was 10 days. Many people are saying, well, it was just a short, limited period of time that they were going to suffer. But what we know is they were called to faithfulness. I read this this week. It challenged me. As someone who's believed for a long time, am I more full of faith or less full of faith? Mark Batterson, he's written a book called The Circle Maker. I've been reading it this week. He says, one litmus test of spiritual maturity is whether your dreams are getting bigger or smaller. The older you get, the more faith you should have because you've experienced more of God's faithfulness. And it is God's faithfulness that increases our faith and enlarges our dreams. So what he is writing here is, I want you to realize God is faithful. So I don't want you turning 40, turning 50, turning 60 and thinking I'm getting more cynical. Golly, I've ached longer and longer. It's nothing compared to you. I appreciate this. In my finer days when I was a footballer, I outpaced someone down the wing. I was absolutely fine for it, and they just took me out and chipped a bone in my right ankle. I was on crutches. Nicky gets a call, come and pick Pete up from A&E again. You know what I'm saying? Now, unfortunately, I just get stiff in my right ankle. When I get out of bed in the morning, you know what I'm saying? I'm sort of hobbling along to the bathroom, you know, and then I can loosen it up, and then I'll be all right for the rest of the day. You know, Cold weather gets to me. We can get a little bit cynical like that spiritually. And we think, I took a knock. I limp a bit now. I'm not sure if I trust God quite as much as I used to. Whereas actually what this is saying, actually God has proved faithful the longer you've been alive. And so therefore we should be more full of faith in him, not less. You know what I'm saying? When someone says, come on, we're going to do a gift day next year, you don't think, oh, I've done a few of these before. You think, great, God, you were faithful last time. You tr- I'm trusting you again. You know what I'm saying? Someone says, oh, look, why don't you invite someone along on a Christmas? You could reach out. Someone could come to. You don't think, oh, I don't get to work. I invited 10 neighbors last year. No one came. You think, God, you are faithful. Therefore, I will keep on trusting you. In the midst of suffering, he is pointing to the faithfulness of God. And then the last little thing is what he says is, God is so faithful, he's not going to give you some reward for this life, but for eternity. It uses this phrase, doesn't it? The crown. I love it, don't you? He would give you the crown of life. Again, this would have meant so much if you lived in 
modern-day Izmir. They used to have hills around the back of the town, and they used to build these ornate buildings. And some people all even named the city the Crown of Asia. Because it's almost like you had this sort of spread of this, and you think, and you think, wow, what a crown. And there's almost, he takes a hold of this picture, and he says, I want you to think, actually, something beautiful. And for us today, we don't quite get it so much. I was thinking about it. You know, if I said the word to you, crown, you might think, 90-year-old queen that's got too much money, and it bows her a little bit, you know what I'm saying? Or you might think, your kid's at Burger King. Oh, we've had a two-pound meal and they've stuck on a little gold crown and we've run down the street. What does this whole picture really mean? Well, a crown for these folk was something often that you won if you competed in the games. They gave you a wreath, a crown. So actually, if you had a crown, it was a crown of victory. Come on, you know what I'm saying? If you did the Ealing Half Marathon and you got yourself a nice little medal, you wouldn't have got a medal in those days. You'd have got a crown and you'd have worn it, which I know some people from the church who did the Half Marathon wore their crown, their medal to school. You know what I'm saying? There you go. I I did it. Teachers, people saying, oh, that's it, I'm there. Well, in those days, you'd have worn this crown around. People go, wow, victory, victory. Well done. Great. What other crowns did they wear? Well, actually, if you were a magistrate in those days and you had served the community for years, they would give you a crown. And so actually, you got a crown for faithfulness. Hey, this person has served a long time. They've given consistently. Faithfulness, they're wearing a crown. In fact, it was something that they often used to wear to the temple. And the idea was that you had this crown on, and it pointed to the fact that you would enjoy the very presence of God. Why did they wear a crown? Well, this was, this was almost like something that culturally they were doing. In fact, if you were wealthy and you were full of health, you might just buy yourself a crown. And so often it's an expression of joy. And so what he's saying here in this letter is actually, in this life, you might be asked to wear a crown of thorns. But in the next life, you'll have a crown of joy that represents faithfulness and the presence of God that endures forever. And so take heart in your difficult times. We know that this is a picture that is used many times in the Bible. You can read Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do this to receive a perishable wreath, crown, but we an imperishable one. Church, be encouraged, because you will be rewarded with something that could not spoil, rot, or fade fun, isn't it? My son's going off to university, my youngest son, we're looking around this week. It reminds me, I went to uni years ago, you know, you try and tell the stories. Funny, do you know what? I cannot even remember what I did with my dissertation. I can't find it anywhere. Not that it would change my life a great deal today, I'm aware, but you suddenly think, at one time, that was the most important document I'd ever had. When I went to uni, there was no computers. I paid a woman to type it for me. And I still haven't got a clue where it is. Gone. Temporary. Where God is going to reward us eternally. 
everlasting. James says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I'm sure you're not like me. Maybe you are. I'll just be honest. I can go up and down. Some days you think, golly, this following Jesus is really hard. There used to be a song written by a band called Fat Fish. And I often used to listen to it at home. It said this, there is a day. So lift your eyes to the things as yet unseen that will remain now. For all eternity, though trouble's hard, it's only momentary. And it's achieving our future glory. If I had to look at this, I would say this whole letter is about contrast. The first and the last. The dead and the alive. The impoverished and the rich. Those that claim to be Jesus and those that aren't. Life and death. I tell you, it talks about now and eternity. This letter is saying to us, look, I understand that you want, you want a, a great blissful life. I'm not just going to offer it to you now, but I'm going to offer it for all eternity. I'm not just going to offer it now in the blink of an eye, which these years would be. I'm going to offer it for all eternity. You will face difficulties, but I know to stand, and then one day you receive that crown of life forever. Amen.